Hello and welcome to The Entrepreneurs on Monocle Radio, the show all about inspiring people, innovative companies and fresh ideas in global business. Today's programme is all about skincare. We meet the founder of a brand whose acclaimed organic products have been proudly formulated, manufactured and packaged in-house in London since 2007. You know, it comes back to my frustrations as a consumer trying to unpick ingredient lists and not being able to, feeling like I was duped a lot, but wanting something that was that was true. This is The Entrepreneurs, with me, Tom Edwards. You're listening to The Entrepreneurs. Sarah Brown founded Pi Skincare in 2007, having failed to find effective all-natural products on the market to treat her own challenging skin. A decade and a half later, and the company is now a key player in the space, B Corp and Cosmos Natural certified, and still offering the complimentary skin coaching and advisory service so beloved of its deeply loyal global customer base. Earlier this year, the Cortan Clarins family's holding company took a stake in Pi Skincare to help step up the brand's growth and turn it into Selective Distribution's clean skincare leader. Here is Sarah Brown, who joined me here at Midori House to share more on the start of the Pi Skincare journey. Pi came about because of a very personal problem, which was my skin. It is a long story, I'll try to keep it short, but I woke up one night with hives, incredibly itchy hives over 80% of my body. And it was an extraordinary thing. And I had to, it was boiling hot to the touch. I had to sit in a cold bath and think, what on earth is happening? And thought it was a sort of an anaphylactic reaction. It wasn't. And it then recurred every night. And I went to my GP, was referred to hospital and was diagnosed with a condition called chronic urticaria. That's not what is critical to this story, but it's important context because it is an idiopathic condition. Many people have this condition or have other skin conditions. And it's not about that rash and it's not about that specifically, but it was about how it made me feel. And so it all flowed from there. And I had to navigate this idiopathic condition, which means of unknown cause, and figure a way through. And so that's the kind of root of it. But actually, there is no treatment or much understanding of it. And I had to unpick myself over many, many years. And so you hear the story a lot with people with skin conditions that are idiopathic. You have to self-solve. And I thought, gosh, it took me years. We need to fast track this for people. But just the experience of trying to navigate beauty aisles and trying to find a product that understood me as a customer was really hard. And that sounds, you know, you think there are millions of moisturisers in the world. How can that be? But it was for me. So that's how it all started. So I had to sort of unpick myself. And that was when I thought, gosh, I'm being missold to all the time. I don't understand ingredient lists. You know, they are baffling on skincare. And I had to just start and, and started to produce from my garage my own concoctions. And it gradually grew from there. Uh, and what I find extraordinary, and it reminds me actually of aspects of, we had Joanna Jensen from Charles Farm on this programme, who had a very similar, oh, yes, deeply yeah. personal story. Even despite that urgency, and as you said, the need to solve a, a problem, there's a calibre of individual or a type of personality who will say, 
right, well, I'm going to set about doing this. Maybe that is the entrepreneurialism that is maybe innate in people or the circumstances dictate it. What was it, do you think, Sarah, that made you, rather than just be frustrated and get annoyed or try and fix for you in the short term, what was the jump that made you say, not only am I going to address this for me, I'm also going to do something bigger. Have you always been that kind of person? I, I, do you know, it's a great question. And I don't know if I know the answer, I think. And I often say, you know, this business chose me. It, I didn't consciously think, you know, I'm going to do this. I just started and thought, well, it has, this is difficult for me. It must be difficult for other people. And actually, as the business started to take shape, it was amazing how many people who I knew, and I'd known for years, would come out of the woodwork, you know, rolling up, their sleeves and rolling up their trouser legs to show me rashes they'd had for years and it was really bizarre and I thought gosh so many people are suffering in silence but I think you know just it's interesting in this sort of sensitive skin space I think it wasn't just that there wasn't a product solution for me it was also the whole philosophy of skincare was Mm. if you are somebody with challenging skin your choices are really limited and they're really bloody boring like you go to a pharmacy and you're told to use a certain, I won't name brands, but you're given a certain selection to choose from. They're kind of simple aqueous creams. They don't have any nice sort of sensory benefits to them. They actually didn't work for me at all. They're 100% synthetic. They're in a really ugly medical bottle. And I thought, well, just because I have this, why is everything a compromise? Why can't I have you know, I'm 47. I was like, why can't I have products that are really high performance, that I feel are really setting me up well, and that are beautiful to use, that have a bit of soul to them. And that was the trigger for me, I guess, a long answer to your question. That was probably the trigger where I thought, no, you can have it all. You should be able to have it all. The natural can perform. And the natural category has really evolved and the sophistication of natural products is amazing now. And I guess I wanted to prove that you could be a good business and you could be and give people a beautiful experience with a bit of substance. Well, this is what I wanted to ask you about, which was the fact that the development of Pi Skincare has it's run almost alongside finally industry-wide improvements in some of this. It's more inclusive. It's cleaner it's more sustainable than it was it's not a huge interest we'll talk more about how wasteful it continues to be but there are lots of observers from without who certainly say that on a large scale the idea of having a clean beauty industry if you want to call it that is still fanciful it's a pipe dream i guess because maybe it's too costly for established players or whatever but do you think that we are edging in the right direction or is it still the heavy burden that sits on the narrow shoulders of people like Um, you Sarah to kind of carry all of these big players along who aren't invested in moving the needle on some of these areas? Do you know what I think we have come some way and I think that the next challenge is is that I think a lot of the efforts in sustainability you know it's a very loosely very widely used term and I think not very ethically sometimes ironically but you know I think sustainability was very has been very focused on packaging actually in beauty And that's not to say that that wasn't a problem we needed to fix. You know, we're terrible polluters. But actually, I think one of my biggest bugbears was, yes, we need to think about end of life of products, but it's not just about the bottle. Are you thinking about what's in the bottle and what happens to that when it washes down your plug holes and into our oceans? And, you know, we're not thinking about sustainability and we're not thinking about it end to end as well. So end of life is really important. And I think that's where the industry's started to focus. And that's great. And we shouldn't take that away from any brand making even an effort on one product or one new product to house it in a better pack. That's great. 
But it's so complex and it's so big and supply chains are so complex that actually you need to think at the very beginning and all the way through. But I think there's really interesting developments happening that we are really pushing hard on that I think it'll take five, ten years, but they will start to take off and become more mainstream. Well, let's talk a bit about high skincare and your products, because on that small scale, I guess it is a bit easier to do formulation and manufacture and packaging because you're in control of all of it. It's literally within within arm's reach in some cases. Remind us about how you began to put this holistic approach to it. And then also explain to me how once you begin to hit a scale, and since 2007, obviously, it's a story of growth. How do you retain that control? Because you have to lose the reins to a degree. So tell us a bit about that. Well, I think the problem is is I haven't. (laughs) So formulating and manufacturing in beauty now is fairly obsolete. It's really sad. And actually 99% of the products in your bathroom are being formulated and manufactured by the same factories. And so we're not getting the uniqueness of formula or the innovation that we think we're getting. And we are total ingredient nerds. We love the production creation process. It's just It's nothing more fulfilling than talking to a customer, thinking about what that need is, developing a concept of a product, a mere two years later, seeing it coming off your own production line. I mean, that's very, very satisfying. It sounds like you can't lose the reins. If you want to retain that authenticity, you kind of have to stay across every bit from concept through delivery, through manufacturing. But you're right. But the scaling is incredibly expensive and hard. And that's why people don't do it. I do understand it. I consistently say it's the thing I'm most proud of because it's the hardest bit. And everybody over the sort of last decade and more have told me not to do it, you know, Mm. consistently. Every bank manager, every potential investor. Never listen to them. Every former colleague. But why why did you... you... Because the ingredients that we're working with are natural and more than that, they're certified organic. Or they're coming from biotechnology now, which we're doing even more. So they are perfection (laughs) they are the highest grade ingredients you can get they have beautiful properties and if you take something like a rosehip oil which we use a lot has four omegas in it but if you store that badly or you heat it at all you literally decimate all of the beautiful skin remedial properties in that ingredient straight away and you can't control that. If you're outsourcing that manufacturing, you cannot control that and you will lose those properties. So, you know, is the control freak in me and my partner and the business we've created is that you just don't want to let go of that. You want to maintain that control because you know that control is what delivers the quality. So it is about that. And I think it's been one of the hardest things to keep in-house as we've grown. I mean, we've probably spent a million just last year on equipment and you have to plan it years ahead because sometimes some of this equipment's being made for you and it might take a year to make so it's really challenging but it's we're so proud of it because we're creating such exceptionally high quality products with exceptional ingredients but that have a little bit of magic in them and I think if you outsource that process to others I guess every brand thinks their products are owned by them and they're not and probably think they're unique and they won't be because they're formulating off existing formulas and just tweaking. Obviously, you had a very committed and enthusiastic customer base, actually, right from the beginning. And it must be one of the great thrills, I suppose, of being a custodian of a brand like Pi Skincare, that as you get bigger, you get the same kind of testimony, even though it's sort mm. of every step slightly further removed. Talk to me about geographies, because it must be particularly, not to generalise too much about nationalities, but if you're a kick-ass independent British company... 
that's beloved of, say, the very discriminating French audience in the sector, for example, that must just be unreal because... They really know what they like and what they don't like. Some people even think that you are a French brand. Yeah, they do. Correct? No, no, they do. So, so they, I mean, no, it is that they're a very discerning customer. They understand beauty. I mean, they really are a highly educated customer. So it is the ultimate compliment. And I always remember many, many years ago, we were launching in this very exclusive chain of natural stores, but they're just very high end. And I arrived for launch and we were going to do in the Midday, we were doing the press launch, and in the evening, we were doing a customer event. And I arrived, and they said, we've really, really screwed up because it's the Sephora press day today, so nobody's going to come. And I thought, okay, shall I just leave? And they said, no, no, stay for the customer events. And I said, well, nobody knows us. Like, literally not a single French consumer knows the brand. And they said, well, you might be surprised. I said, no, (laughs) I really won't. I thought, well, I'm here now. And just as we were coming up to the start of the event, they said, can you look out the door? And there was a queue going down the block. I was just shocked. And when I talked to these uber-educated customers coming in, they said, Sarah, we call ourselves the payettes. <laughs> and I just died. I was like, what? You know, and it was, to your point, I think it's every business owner's absolute thrill and it never changes as you grow. It's that connection to the customer is everything and, and so important. And, yeah, it is, it's, a, it's a real thrill. What makes a brand travel with that ease do you think because it's not just France you know it is a global brand and that expansion well it seems like that was kind of in your mind in terms of understanding the potential of what you were developing but again I mean are there any there's no shortcuts right to doing that does it involve a bit of serendipity is there a bit of luck I mean what kinds of things contribute to a brand that can travel like that I think lots of luck and and lots of failure too which then leads to more luck later. But honestly, I think it's not overthinking it and just being authentic and being true to who you are. And I think when you see the brands that do that, that come from this real sense of purpose, I think those purpose-led brands have that brand power. And it is as simple as that. And I think in our space, beauty is so competitive. But I think you can see the brands that have that root purpose and those that don't. And a lot don't. And I think... That's really served us well because we've never deviated from the mission of trying to help people with challenging skin, but do it with some panache and style and hold their hand as well. So we have a great consultation service and that's always been part of the offering that's free. But it comes back to me, you know, it comes back to my frustrations as a consumer, trying to unpick ingredient lists and not being able to, feeling like I was duped a lot, but wanting something that was that was true. Mm. And I think it's a lot about that. And that's interesting. So that idea of genuinely caring, understanding and sharing the provenance of the ingredients, being transparent. um, Have you been reassured and encouraged by the degree to which even new consumers, they demand that now. It's less about you making people understand how important that transparency is. The consumers demand that from the products that they buy. Have Have you seen progress in that over the last, what, 10, 15 years? I have, but not as much as I'd like, if I'm being really honest. I think it's I think it's still very difficult to get a customer, particularly when they're not necessarily in your immediate realm. So they're in a one of your retailers and they're they're sort of looking at your shelf and there's nothing there to really explain who you are. I think it is quite challenging to get them to turn that pack around and look at our kite marks and actually understand what they are. Mm. We've always backed up our claims. We've done that from day one. But not everyone knows what they even mean. So that's a problem. And I'd love to say the awareness of organic 
kite marks has got better, but we're miles off. So I think we're getting there, but I think... Um, Work, work still work, to be done, we can de- say. Definitely, definitely yeah. work still to be done. Yeah. We've talked a little bit about scale. You've mentioned some scary numbers in terms of investment in infrastructure and that kind of thing. Um, that will require investment, potentially partnerships. It has done in your case. Talk to me a little bit about that because there's lots of brands that either they sell out, there's an exit from the founders mm-hmm. and then it changes the course, if you like, of where that goes. How did you manage that? How did you choose with whom you worked? You've got some partners with some quite great heritage and and some amazing stories. Talk to me about that process. Well, if you go back to the beginning again, actually, I started the business with no money. So I had £15,000, which ran out in three months. So bootstrapped for the longest time and then have gone through so many rounds of investment now because manufacturing is a really, really expensive endeavour. So started with family offices and banks and and I always say, don't be frightened of debt. It's actually really helpful. And, you know, honestly, no brand owner necessarily wants to give away equity. I still hate doing it. But I knew that if I wanted to keep running the businesses in the way, in the way that I wanted and, and to keep making products, then needed to, to raise money. And then it was, how do you find those partners? And really, it came down to who was willing to invest in the manufacturer, which is not many, <laughs> because that's a lot of money you could be spending on advertising. And I always say if we hadn't invested the millions and millions in our own production site in London, I mean, it's madness, it's commercial insanity, we'd be 10 or 20 times the size because we'd have invested all of that in marketing. So it was a very conscious choice to do. But actually, do, do you think that's true, though? What? That you would have that size and scale if, if you'd gone for the I think, M for marketing rather than M for manufacturing? Um, do you know, know what? But... I don't know, but actually I do. I do think that because I've seen other brands do it. You know, mm. as I said, no brands make their own products. They're much smarter. <laughs> they get someone else to do it so that they don't need, you know, huge teams to run a factory. It's costly in so many different ways, even in just the compliance and, and the complexity of that. So I don't know the answer to that. And maybe, maybe it might not be 10 times, maybe it'd be five times because maybe customers do realise the value of that. But I'd, so many customers don't know our manufacturing story and how important it is to us as a brand and, and also the benefit to them. I think that's been really hard to convey but, you know, going back to your question, you know, we, we've always been really discerning about who we partner with in investment. And, and we're really, you know, really honoured, actually, that a veteran heritage family in this beauty space were happy to support us and really believed in the mission. And they are manufacturers themselves, so they got it. That sort of whole sense of, you know, long is strong and you know, the fact that it's such a commitment to the cause and we understand why you want to do it and we'll support you on that, is amazing. And I think as a brand owner, you, ha- you have a choice, and, and many of them are very hard choices of also thinking longer term of if you go down conventional private equity route, you know, your brand is ultimately going to be sold and flipped, and, and it might not survive, and so many don't. Yes, you might exit with a lot of money, and that might be what is your driving purpose, but it isn't for me. It isn't about the money, so it is about... What is the partner that's going to protect this brand so that it has longevity for 10, 20, 30 years? I want pie to exist in 30 years. I think you're going the right way about it. For my untrained eye <laughs> from without, Sarah, it's funny, I was talking to a colleague before we, we started taping about the challenge. You know, there's a, there is a bit of, I don't know if it's sort of ennui from a public who's bored of people talking about it or whether there's a bit of cynicism about it. This idea we've had big pharma in that moment. Now the big wellness and the idea that sort of big corporates are looking to get into the well-being space, which sounds really 
confused and confusing. <laughs> How do you feel about that? It's presumably great given your mantra and the priorities that you've set for the business that people want to talk about meaningful enduring health and wellness but is it unhelpful when we get this sort of corporatization of some of the language does that make your job more difficult or actually does it aid more broadly consumer engagement with that space do you know i don't think i've ever thought about it in that way i think anything that opens up the category and opens up the market is good so i think there's this term used a lot in our beauty space called clean you know we talk about clean skincare it drives me absolutely mad because what does it mean and it sort of insinuates that everything else is unclean and somehow toxic and unsafe and that's not an ethical way to market your brand but I think what I do say about that terminology is that it exploded the natural category and it exploded it it came from the US and for all of its sort of murkiness I mean there's an irony there but it is very murky it exploded the natural category and that we can only benefit from. Well, let's look to the future. What are the plans? I, I tend to often ask entrepreneurs in this sort of, when we look to the future about how they calibrate expectations and how they reconcile the desire to grow and share the story with the desire to retain control, if that's an irrelevant dynamic. How do you do that? Do you have to marry up day-to-day decision-making with long-term goals? You've spoken about some of them already, Sarah, but how do you make sense of what's coming next? <sighs> I wish I had I had a complete answer to that because I don't. I know where I want the brand to get to and I want it to continue to grow and I want it to be ultimately a household name and brand. And I think anyone that's struggling with their skin, I'd love them to think, oh, well, I'll talk to Pi. And when I say talk to Pi, you know, they'll log on and book a consultation and have a free chat. And so it's not just about the selling of the products. I hope that we will be a solution for people in many sense of the word and hold their hands through a difficult time. And that's all that drives me, actually. So it's anything that allows us to reach more people. You know, I've just been on holiday and I was chatting to this random person in a bar and she was a mum and she was saying it was just so interesting talking to a customer, right? And she said, you know, I just... I don't know where to start. It's so difficult to navigate. And I don't want to spend lots of money, but I just want to buy well. She said, I want to buy well for my skin because I'm at a certain point in my life. But she said, I just want to buy well. And I said, you know, I understand what you're saying because I've always said, you know, we're here to help people feel good in their skin, but also good about the choice they've made. And that is also what I think we're about. And it is about just doing our best to be a good business and making people feel good about that choice. And when I think of brands I love, I have that. It's those two things. I'm usually going back to that brand again and again because of the quality and because it's solving a problem maybe. But ultimately, I'm buying it also because there's something about it that makes me feel like I'm making a good choice. And that is, I think, what I want to harness and grow forever is this idea of giving people that good choice without any sort of compromise. So I don't know that that answers your question, but the ambition is endless. We have partnered now with Big Beauty Family now to help us on that road. And they're already, you know, really helping us even understand how we scale our manufacturing, how we scale our teams, how do we distribute more widely. And it will be a process of how we navigate that. But it's amazing to have that counsel because there's so much when you're a business. I've never done this before. I'm, I run this business with my partner and he's never done it before. You know, there's no training manual. So it's really helpful because otherwise you just keep making mistakes as we have done, but maybe make a few less. That was Sarah Brown. You can learn more about the brand by heading to pieskincare.com. 
And that's it for this episode of The Entrepreneurs. We'll be back next week and do look out for Eureka on Fridays. The programme was produced by Laura Kramer with mixing and editing by Tamsin Howard. Listen again and find out more about The Entrepreneurs at monocle.com. That's where you can subscribe to Monocle magazine and read more about better businesses every month. You can also follow us and catch up with the archive via your preferred podcast platform. To contact the team here at Monocle, email Laura. She's on LRK at monocle.com. I'm Tom Edwards. Goodbye and thanks for listening to The Entrepreneurs. <laughs>